Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the very first episode of the new year of the Judgment Call podcast. This is Miles Wilson. If you are tuning in, I really do appreciate you. As always, we're going to go ahead and get right into it. I'm going to start recapping the college football playoff weekend from this past Saturday solely because it's about two weeks until the next game. It's about two weeks until the championship game. I cannot wait to talk about it. I cannot wait to watch that game. But I do want to talk about both of the matchups. I do want to talk about LSU versus Oklahoma. And I do want to talk about Clemson versus Ohio State. So I'm going to go ahead and jump into those two topics before I move on. And we're going to start with LSU versus Oklahoma. So coming into this game, LSU was about a 12.5-point favorite. And I looked at that line and I was like, Ugh. if I were a betting man, I would hammer the over on that. But I did try to be optimistic. I did hope for a shootout. You you can't say I didn't hope for a shootout. You can't say I didn't hope for the best. I said I wanted to see some competition. I wanted to see Oklahoma's offense and the historic LSU offense go at it. I wanted to be shown something different. But no, it was exactly as expected. It was. like It's unfortunate, but it was. I stated that I wanted to be impressed by Oklahoma the last time you heard me talk about these two teams. And after a rough three weeks of football, I really wanted to see if Oklahoma had improved on either side of the ball. I wanted to see if their offense could hang with an SEC team's offense. They're really one of the greatest offenses of all time. And then I wanted to see if their defense could show me absolutely anything. But instead of being blown away by Oklahoma, I was absolutely blown away by LSU's quarterback, Joe Burrow. I have watched every single ranked game he's played in this year. And, and a couple of random ones, too. I watched the Utah State game just to see him play against Jordan Love. I watched the Vandy game because I live in Tennessee. And then I watched the Ole Miss game just because it happened to be on TV at the time. But other than that, I watched every single ranked game he's played this year. And I have concluded that he is the most accurate college quarterback I have ever watched played. And in my eyes, he has suppressed Andrew Luck as the most NFL-ready quarterback I've ever watched in my entire life. And it's, it's crazy because, for context, here's my top five list. Number one is Andrew Luck. I watched Andrew Luck. I was like, yeah, he's, he's ready. He, he could start on the NFL day one. And then number two is Cam Newton. I looked at Cam Newton. I was like, oh, yeah, he's, he's the real deal. Like, this is a real football player. This kid is huge. He can make plays. And then number three is Matthew Stafford. Partially, that was just because of the arm talent that he had coming out of Georgia. I don't know if it was the I don't know if he was incredibly accurate on the deep ball. For it was just because he was throwing to AJ Green every single play. When I watched Georgia at that time, I was nine years old, but I did look at him and I was like, "Oh man, he's really good." Number four is Russell Wilson. I watch a lot of Big Ten football because growing up, I was a Michigan fan, so I watched Russell Wilson play a lot. I just watched all the Big Ten football more than any other conference, and I was like, "Oh man." He's pretty good. He'll probably be in the NFL one day. And surprisingly, he lasted until the third round. And then number five was Gardner Minshew. I do watch a lot of random football teams. Wazoo was one of the teams that I watched. Gardner Minshew was, is, kind of reminds me of Joe Burrow in the way that they neither of them are incredibly physical talents. But they have the football IQ to be successful in the league. I'm now moving everyone down a slot. Gardner Minshew falls out of my top five. And I'm putting Joe Burrow at the number one quarterback I have ever watched as far as being NFL ready. He could start day one on any team that needs a quarterback in the league. 
all of them. And it's crazy because, like I said, he is not the most physically gifted quarterback ever. He's, he's not even the most physically gifted quarterback in his class. Jacob Eason and Justin Herbert both have better arms. Jordan Love is more physically talented than him in pretty much every way. He has better legs. He has a better arm. Two attack of Iloa is a better deep ball thrower. It's, he's not the most physically gifted quarterback to ever come out of college. But what he does have that separates him from everyone else is his accuracy. Not just on certain throws, but on every throw. His ball placement is fantastic, and his football IQ is on another level. Like, I've never seen a quarterback consistently put the ball in the right spot every time. Like, ever. Professional quarterbacks still struggle with this. Like, that's why people like Mitch Trubisky struggle in the NFL. That is why people like Case Keenum are backups. It's because they can't do what starting quarterbacks do. And Joe Burrow does it right virtually every time. That is incredibly impressive. And his pocket presence is ridiculous. One of the comparisons I've seen for Joe Burrow is that he is a more mobile Tom Brady. And if I'm being completely honest with you, that's probably the most accurate one I've seen because Tom Brady coming out of college was not the most physical, physically gifted quarterback ever. Even now, all time, he's nowhere near the most physically gifted quarterback ever. But he has an incredible football IQ. He has an incredible pocket presence. And he is incredibly accurate. So, yeah, that, that's an excellent comp. And if you watch Joe Burrow play in the pocket, if Tom Brady was fast... That is exactly how he would move in the pocket because Joe Burrow isn't a runner. In the NFL, he will not run as much as he does in college. But the moves he makes in the pocket, just taking a slight step left to avoid a defender or ducking under a defender as they're trying to tackle him, move rolling out of the pocket to complete a pass down the field. That is how Tom Brady would play if he had the legs, but he doesn't. I think that is an excellent comp for Joe Burrow. I am extremely excited to watch him play against Clemson in the national championship game. And I'm very excited to watch him dominate the combine, play in the pros, even though I hope he doesn't go to Cincinnati. I hope he says no to Cincinnati. A lot of people forget that even if you get drafted by a team, you can still say no. I don't want to play for you. The same way all of us have jobs, they have jobs too. The NFL is an employer. You, You can't be forced into a job just because you apply for a job and they say you can start working doesn't mean you have to work there. The same applies for the NFL. They just encourage you to play for whoever drafts you. But anyways, before I talk about the LSU versus Oklahoma, not the LSU, the other game, the Clemson versus Ohio State game, I have to talk about Oklahoma. So the last I talked about them, the last you heard me talk about this matchup, I was saying that I wanted to be surprised. I wanted to discover something new about Oklahoma that I hadn't been shown all season. And I was shown absolutely nothing. Nothing new. Absolutely nothing. Grabbed me and said, hey, look, Oklahoma's doing something new. In fact, I was pretty disappointed. Like, actually, and it wasn't even the defense. that We knew what the defense was. They struggled against sub-500 Big 12 teams. I didn't expect them to go out there, shut out LSU. I didn't even expect them to slow it down. I expected a shootout, and their offense did nothing. I expected their offense to at least be able to hang around. They didn't even do that. They did it terribly. And in fact, OSU, Ohio, 
not Ohio. Oklahoma first drives in the first half. For this is the, for the entire first half. Their drives went punt, punt, touchdown, punt, 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 interception, touchdown, punt. And the score at that point was 49 to 14 and the game was effectively over. That's awful. This is from a team whose defense for the past three or four years has been touted as not good. It's the weakest part of their team, but their offense has put up incredible numbers. They've had two Heisman winners and one that finished second in Heisman voting. So you would think that they'd at least be able to hang around and they didn't. It wasn't even competitive. And I've never been the guy to just say, oh, well, well, this team just sucks. No, you have to go back and look at why certain things happen. So number one, we've already concluded that it's the defense. But we already knew that, so there's no point in harping on that anymore. That was was the weak point of this team. The more disappointing part is number two, Jalen Hurts is nowhere near the quarterback that Baker Mayfield or Kyler Murray were at Oklahoma. And I really, really hate to say that because I like Jalen Hurts. I think he's a very solid dude. He handled getting benched by Tua Tagovailoa extreme, extremely well. He's probably a great guy. He's extremely well-spoken. His teammates seem like they really love him, but he just did not have the arm talent to beat or compete with LSU. He was 15 of 31. He had 217 yards, no touchdowns, one interceptions. And his star receiver, CeeDee Lamb, had four of those receptions for 119 of his yards. This game probably tanked his draft stock, if we're being honest. He probably took him from a possible late day one, early day two guy to a late day two guy or a day three guy. People and teams, GMs, coaches, they're going to be less likely to take a Lamar Jackson chance on him. And, and what by that I mean committing an entire offensive scheme, designing an entire offensive scheme around Jalen Hurts. And mainly it's because of the way Oklahoma uses Jalen Hurts a lot of the time. They really committed to his running style instead of trying to develop him as a passer. They didn't do that with Kyler Murray. They knew Kyler Murray was an electric runner, but they knew he was a passer before he was a runner, regardless of how electric of a runner Kyler Murray was. So they had more passing plays. They had more RPOs. They didn't just give the ball to Kyler Murray and say, hey, go out there and get as many yards as you can running the football. That is exactly what they did with Hurts, though. They wouldn't even run like a read option. They would just do a direct quarterback snack and snap and send him up the gut and be like, hey, get, get as many yards as you can. He'd go for a six-yard run. They'd get up and do it again. Like There were games where he was getting 26, 27, 28 carries a game. And unfortunately, that's not a sustainable style of play in the NFL. And you could, all, you could not even say the argument, hey, didn't Louisville do that with Lamar Jackson at in, in college? And the answer would be yes and no. They People, teams are well aware of the kind of runners they have. Lamar Jackson isn't a downhill runner. He's a finesse runner. Every time he touches the ball, he's trying to juke a guy out, make a guy miss, and go score. That's not how Hurts runs. Hurts, on the other hand, is a much more physical runner. He's more likely to just take the hit and get whatever he can. For comparison's sake, Lamar runs like Mike Vick, and Hurts runs like Cam Newton. 
But the problem is, Hurts and Lamar are the same size. They're both about 6'2", 220, 216 is his official listed weight. But they're about the same size. Lamar is 6'2", 220. On the other hand, Hurts doesn't run like Vic. Hurts runs more like Cam Newton. And Cam Newton is 6'5", 245 pounds. So you see the problem. People have been talking about Cam being injury prone as all year. Finally, for the first time in his career, he didn't play at least 14 games. And people are talking about this could be it for Cam Newton. And he's only been in the league for 10 years. And Jalen Hurts is six foot two, 216 pounds, running the exact same style as Cam Newton, who is an absolute bruiser. Louisville was well aware of the kind of runner they had with Lamar. And they understand that even Lamar's style of play, he could get hit one good time and he might be done for a little bit. When you're Jalen Hurts and all you do is try to absorb tackles at that size, your career will be very short in the NFL. And I'm not sure any GMs want to take that chance and make Jalen Hurts a fresh, a franchise quarterback. On top of that, Hurts also isn't as good as a passer as Lamar Camwar coming out of college. He's been incredibly inconsistent. That's why he got benched by two attack of Iowa. That's why he sometimes looks like he's doing fantastic. He's really improving. And then other time he goes out, throws terrible picks and makes very bad decisions. Overthrows his guys. And I'm like, well... I know exactly what to do with this information. You can't depend on the guy because it's it's hard to teach a guy to make good decisions. That's why a lot of NFL coaches, a lot of NFL GMs would rather have the guy that has an incredible football cue, great accuracy. Everything is right from the neck up instead of having everything right from the neck down. You're a great physical talent, but you make really bad decisions. You don't know where to put the ball. That's Jamarcus Russell. That's... Case Kingdom, that's Ryan Leaf. Like, you can list off a bunch of people who are great physical talents, but when they got to the league, it's, oh, you can't make good decisions? Well, the league's going to eat you up. These defenders are much more talented. Everybody's just as good as you were in high school or college. Five stars everywhere now that they're in the NFL. And I just don't think that NFL teams will be willing to give Jalen Hurts a chance now, given his running style, his play style, and his inconsistencies throwing the ball. I just find it hard to believe that they will give him a chance as a starting quarterback or even a franchise quarterback. Now I'm going to talk about the game that I've been anticipating for a very long time now. Clemson played Ohio State. It's hard when all these teams have the exact same letters. English is hard. It's LSU, OSU, OU. So sometimes I read my writing and I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's LSU. No, it's Ohio State. Clemson played Ohio State in the college football playoff second game of the day. And this game is exactly what I would thought it would be. And I could not have been more happier with the outcome of the game because it was competitive. It was dramatic. And it truly had a championship feel. I thought this game would have a more championship feel than the actual championship game just because of how highly toted these two teams have been and how little either of these teams have been tested. Like, they pretty much ran through both of their seasons. The only close game that Clemson had was against North Carolina, 
And the closest game Ohio State had was in the Big Ten Championship against Wisconsin where they were down early. Everyone else, they pretty much ran through. And I already stated what I wanted to see from Clemson. When the same same podcast episode, I talked about what I wanted to see in the LSU-Oklahoma game. I talked about the storyline I was following in this game, and it was going to be, can we finally see Clemson face some adversity? Can we finally see them be tested? And they were. They were down early against Ohio State. Ohio State had all the momentum. They were controlling time of possession. The defense was stifling Clemson's offense, and Clemson did not give up. They fought back. Now, will I admit that Clemson got some favorable calls that they capitalized on. Yes, keyword is capitalized. Because will I also say that the outcome of this game was swayed by these calls? Absolutely not. Even the biggest missed call of the game, where Jeff Okuda broke up a pass between Justin Rost that was called a fumble on the field, that drive ended in a punt. No points at all resulted from that drive. Yes, I understand. They took six points off the board. But guess what? You got the ball back two plays later. And do you know what happened two plays later? A lot of people want to erase this from their memory. Immediately after getting the ball back, two plays and I think three seconds of game time went off the clock. Justin Fields threw his second interception of the season directly at Isaiah Simmons, which was a great play by Isaiah Simmons. Terrible play by Justin Fields. He stared down the receiver the whole time. Isaiah Simmons just hightailed it to go get that ball. And a lot of people want to erase that from their memory for some reason because they're still caught up on, oh, no, they erased it off the board. We should have been up right there. No, go make a play. You threw an interception immediately after getting the ball back. And also, the refs didn't let Trevor Lawrence run for a 67-yard touchdown to give him the lead going into half. Actually, no, they were down two. The refs still, regardless, did not allow that to happen. The refs didn't force Ohio State to rough the kicker on a punt that ended up in a 53-yard touchdown by Travis Etienne. They also didn't fall for the play call where... Trevor Lawrence faked the run and then did the jump pass to Travis Etienne and gave up a 34-yard go-ahead touchdown. None of those three touchdowns were at the fault of the refs. But I get it. It's a lot easier to blame the refs. Ohio State did not lose this game because of the refs. It's just easy to blame them instead of self-reflecting. It's so much easier to say, Oh, no, we were robbed. The refs blew the game. Instead of saying, hey, we could have done this better. We could have done that better. We could have capitalized here. We could have capitalized there. It's just much easier. It's actually pretty lazy to say we were robbed by the refs. Dude, when that call happened, every single call that Ohio State fans are complaining about happened with plenty of time left on the clock. That one big call that everybody is saying Ohio State should have had six points on the board. There was an entire quarter of football left that happened at the four minute mark of the third quarter. You had an entire quarter of football left to win the game. And I've been vocal about how bad the refs have been this year, too, and pretty much for like the past couple of years, honestly. But this was not the case here. In reality, Ohio State lost because of their lack of ability to capitalize. People talked about how dominant Ohio State was all year, and rightfully so. They were fantastic. 
so fantastic that in the red zone, they scored a touchdown on 82% of their drives, which was second in the FBS. Against Clemson, they made it to the red zone three separate times and scored nine total points, no touchdowns. They left 12 points on the board. They could have had a potential 21 points. Mathematically, 81% of your red zone drives, if you score a touchdown, they should have at least had 17. That'd be two touchdowns and a field goal. But nope, they had nine points. Even if they score one touchdown, they win the game. But guess what? They didn't score a touchdown. They didn't capitalize. They made mistakes. So stop holding the refs and hold your team accountable for what you can actually control. And I've expressed my sentiments about Ohio State since the game against Penn State a couple weeks back when they had the three turnovers and still won the game. That is when I decided that, well, you know what? Looking at it, this team is not a juggernaut. This team can be beat. I even said this after they pummeled Michigan. I said that what Michigan showed me in the first half is that if they were any other team, they would have won that game because their game plan was great, but they don't handle adversity well. If Ohio State plays a team that plays anywhere near as good as Michigan played in the first half, but handles adversity well, they don't get defeated when something doesn't go their way, Ohio State's going to lose. Because teams had been effectively getting rid of Chase Young in that, since that game. Michigan showed the blueprint on how to stop Chase Young. You just chip him with a running back. Double team him. Chip him if it's a one-on-one. Chase Young will be out of the game. And then anywhere else, just capitalize when Ohio State makes mistakes. And don't make enough mistakes for Ohio State to get a huge lead. That's what Clemson did. Their defense bend. Don't break. They play that all game. Every time they got in the red zone, held them to three points. Their offense finally came around near the end of the second second quarter. And then once that happened, they just kept going. They kept fighting. I'm pretty sure Dabble Sweeney lit a fire under his team at halftime. And speaking of coaches, Ryan Day at halftime looked absolutely shook. Like, I've never seen a coach so jittery. I've never seen a coach blame the refs as much as he did. I've never seen a coach look like he didn't have control over his team. Even on the sideline, he was being a lot more emotional than he did throughout the entire regular season. And I do believe that that played a part in Ohio State losing. Their coach did not calm the team down. Their coach did not rally the team and say, hey, no matter what happens, hey, we got a guy ejected due to a targeting penalty, but it doesn't matter. Next man up, we've got this. It didn't look like he did that at all. It looked like he was absolutely shook. It looked like he went in the locker room and said, hey, man, the refs are against us. We're just going to have to go out there and try and do as good as we can. He was absolutely shaken up. If you could go out there and find the halftime interview anywhere, I suggest you do. But Ryan Day did not look like he had a good grip on the team. And for the rest of the game, he looked absolutely shaky. Okay, so now we're done with college football. And now I get to move on what I, Move on to what I've been waiting for for how long is the football season? Is it six months? Let's see. August, September, October, November, December. Five months. What I've been waiting for for five months. Wild card weekend. Playoff season is finally here. We get four great games this weekend. Starting today, we have the Bills and the Texans. And then we have the Titans at the Patriots. Followed by Sunday's matchup. 
of the Vikings at the Saints. And then the Seattle Seahawks go to Philly. And I cannot wait for the playoffs this year because there's no clear-cut favorite to come out of either conference. Both conferences have fantastic teams. This isn't a year where it's like, oh, the Patriots are going to the Super Bowl again. No, not even close. A lot of people aren't even thinking they'll get out of the divisional round. And it's for good reason. But the AFC is a toss-up. The NFC is extremely competitive. And honestly, I don't know who's going to come out. Could I make an educated guess? Yes, but I don't like giving out predictions. I do like giving out analysis, though, and that is exactly what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to start with the first game of the day where the Bills play the Texans in Houston. So when you hear me talk most of the time about football, it's about how important quarterback play is to a team success. So logically, you think I'd choose the team with a better quarterback, but no, you would be wrong. That is how not how pro football works. Good quarterbacks elevate good teams to great teams or elite teams. Okay quarterbacks or serviceable quarterbacks can get the job done and make good teams or good defenses rather. They could really help good defenses. And good since good quarterbacks elevate good teams, I would be hard-pressed to pick against the Bills. Because this entire season, the Texans have not been good. They have the better quarterback, but they don't have the better team. They've had good moments, sure. But overall, they've been very inconsistent. They get a good win over New England. And they follow it up with a bad loss to Denver. And then it'd be like, hey, we just beat the Chiefs. And then they'd go give up a career-high four touchdowns to Jacoby Brissett and a loss to the Colts. Like, what is that? That is the very definition of inconsistent. The tale of the Texans all year has been the most inconsistent team in football, and I cannot confidently put my faith in that team. And I'm also still very old school in my philosophy of football. I don't know if it's because of where I grew up, or I just don't know if it's because it works no matter what era you're in, but defense wins games and defense wins championships. Buffalo has it. Houston does not. Josh Allen is also a serviceable quarterback. I'd even go out and say that he's a good quarterback. He's had a great sophomore season, in my opinion. And with that defense, I would be very, very, very hard-pressed not to choose him to win this game. But only Sith's deal in absolutes. So I would never count on a team with a quarterback as dynamic as Deshaun Watson because the only thing that can beat a great defense is a perfect offense. Literally. And it's not like they have a guy who's a statue who's just going to sit in the pocket all game. Deshaun Watson is a very dynamic quarterback. I would never count him out of a game. There's a reason Dabo Sweeney said he's the Michael Jordan of quarterbacks. There is a reason he's been compared to being as dynamic as Michael Jordan. I wouldn't compare anybody to Michael Jordan. But there is a reason people are saying that because he's a very dynamic quarterback. He's very good. I would not count him out of the game. But given the facts, given the details that I've had, given watching the games all year, I think the Buffalo Bills should win this game and get their first playoff win since 1999, I believe. Now, you know, I'm moving on to the next game. It's the Titans playing in New England against the Patriots. And this is really blowing my mind. I've I slept on this podcast. 
specifically for this reason. You know, because I never thought that I would think that the Patriots would be an underdog in Gillette in January. But man, after that Dolphins loss, I'm having a hard time believing in New England. Here, the Titans are still one of the, if not the hottest team in football. They have the NFL's rushing champion in Derrick Henry. They have an outstanding rookie wide receiver in A.J. Brown. And they have a quarterback that's probably the NFL's comeback player of the year. And if not, if he doesn't win the award, he is at bare minimum a top three candidate. But the thing is, even with all of that and how good the Titans have been, even though I don't believe in the Patriots, do I really think that the Titans will go in to Gillette Stadium to play Bill Belichick and Bill Belichick will lose to Ryan Tannehill? A quarterback who's this will be his first playoff start. They're also playing a coach whose first playoff experience, besides playing for New England and winning those three championships back in the day, his first playoff coaching experience is going to be in Gillette and they're going to pull off a playoff win. I find that extremely hard to believe. And I, I tossed and turned about this. I was like, man, like the Titans at this point in time definitely look better than the Patriots have played this season. Like, no doubt. I can say that with confidence. But do I think, regardless of how hot this team has been, do I think a first-year quarterback in the playoffs and a first-year coach in the playoffs can go into Gillette Stadium and beat Bill Belichick and Tom Brady? I don't know. But given history, I don't think so. Like, it shouldn't happen. I would be, I would be shocked because that would effectively mean that the Patriots dynasty is nearing an end. I wouldn't say it's over because... If we're being honest, all the Patriots need is a good wide receiver one. Julian Edelman isn't a wide receiver one, no matter what anybody will tell you. He's a great slot receiver, but he's not a wide receiver one. They need a good wide receiver one, and they'd be fine, but I don't know if they can get that. I don't know if Tom Brady wants to wait around for an organization to get him that. I don't know. This could very well be the decline of a franchise. And I don't know if they'll disappear from existence once Tom Brady, Bill Belichick go, but I don't know if it will be at the hands of the Titans. But I do really like the Titans. In this. I do really like this Titans team. I do really like the Titans in this game. I will not count them out at all. I do think the Titans have a very good shot of going into Gillette and winning this game. And I will not be surprised at all if they beat New England. Now we're going to move on to the NFC games where the first matchup is the Vikings and the Saints on Sunday, which is a rematch of the 2018 NFC Divisional Round that ended in heartbreak for the Saints with the Minnesota Miracle. For me, I've had no play in either of the teams, so I thought it was a fantastic play. But I don't think this game will be close enough for it to happen again. The Saints have been knocking on the door for three years now. That window is closing very fast. If their journey ended in a wild card round, it would be absolutely heartbreaking. I think their window would be almost officially closed. And the Saints should win this game. They have the better offense. 
They have the better defense. They have the better coaching. They have the better quarterback. They have the better skill players. They have the better offensive line. And frankly, the Saints have to win this game. They can't afford to wait another year and hope Drew Brees is still the same guy at 40 years old. You just can't do it. After the past two years, neither of them have been all their fault, by the way. I'm using air quotes because technically it is. The Minnesota miracle is preventable if you just get them out of bounds. And even though there was a terrible blown call in the in the NFC Championship game, the game still went to overtime and Drew Brees still threw a pick, but I digress. I've said all year that I don't believe in the Minnesota Vikings. The Vikings are full gold, fool's gold. They're not a top-end team in the NFL. They're great. Not, not, they're not great. They're not terrible. They're just okay. Only one team they beat, they're 10-6. and six. Only one of the teams that they beat are above 500, and that is the Philadelphia Eagles in the NFC least, one of the worst conferences in all of football. No other team they beat is in the playoffs above 500 or have a draft pick outside of the top 17. Most of them have draft picks inside of the top 10. All of their wins, in my opinion, have been games they're supposed to win. They've had a very easy schedule. I do not believe in the Minnesota Vikings. Now, the last game of wildcard weekend is the Seattle Seahawks going into Philadelphia to play the Eagles. And in my opinion, it really sucks that Philly gets home field at nine and seven when the Seahawks are 11 and five and the better team. But it is what it is. I mean, the Giants made it into the playoffs as a wild card at nine and seven, and they ended up beating the Patriots in a season where they went 16. No. So anything is possible. But both of these teams have been plagued by injuries all year. That Eagles defense is nowhere near as good as that Giants defense was. And I do think that the Seahawks should win this game. The Eagles have shown me absolutely nothing all season to believe in them for the entire postseason. Like, absolutely nothing. They've lost to the Vikings, the Cowboys, the Lions, the Falcons, and the Dolphins. They needed OT to beat the Giants. And they needed last-second heroics to beat the Redskins after being down at the half. The Redskins have the number two pick. The Dolphins have the number five pick. The Lions have the number three pick. The Falcons have the number, like, 15 pick because there were, like, six different teams tied for seven and nine. The Cowboys have only beat – the Cowboys are eight and eight, and I don't think they've even beat a team over 500 this year except for the Eagles that one time. And I don't think the Eagles were 500 at the time that they beat them. And then the Vikings only beat one team above 500, which was this Eagles team. And so I'm like, yeah, this they're in the same boat as the Vikings for me. They're not a great team. They're not a bad team. I will admit that injuries have absolutely plagued this team. But, yeah, that's not going to stop me from giving a absolute analysis of the team. The Eagles and the NFC Leash just did not deserve a spot in the playoffs this year, whether it was the Cowboys or the Eagles, I would have these same thoughts about this game versus the Seahawks. I just, I personally, I think the injuries will finally catch up to Philly. I don't think Philly has enough firepower on offense. I don't think their defense can contain Russell Wilson long enough. Even though Russell Wilson is without a starting left tackle, he has plenty of injuries all over the field. His He is the leading rusher going into the playoffs with about like 342 yards. Their second leading rusher may or may not be Marshawn Lynch with 34 yards. And it's going to hurt because if the Seahawks were healthy, 
I would probably have them moving further along in the playoffs. But since they're not, I do think they have enough to beat the Eagles. But anything past that, I am not sure. (sighs) Well, that's all I have for you guys today. I do appreciate you if you made it this far, if you listened all the way through. I appreciate each and every one of you who make it all the way through and give me feedback about my podcast. I appreciate each and every one of you. I am done for the day. I hope you guys enjoy your wild card weekend. I hope you guys enjoy your weekend in general if you're just listening. I hope you have a fantastic day. Again, this is Miles with the Judgment Call podcast. I will see you guys when I see you guys. Peace out.